I'm Mike Wilkerson from twoguystalking.com, and you're listening to the Two Guys Talking Podcast Network. Welcome to the Animal Academy Podcast. I'm Allison White, and I'm a licensed clinical social worker who specializes in the human-animal connection. This podcast will showcase professionals who share their areas of expertise in an ongoing series of interviews, and you are there. Their input, stories, and knowledge will help us all understand that we are the ones that actually end up learning from the animals. This is the Animal Academy Podcast. Welcome to the Animal Academy Podcast. I'm really excited to talk to our guest, Nicholas Meyer, from Hope Animal Assisted Crisis Response. The reason I asked for a representative from Hope is because years ago, I believe it was maybe 15 and 20 years ago, I'm afraid to even count how many years ago that actually was, I took my certified therapy dog down to Atlanta, Georgia, to be tested in order to hopefully qualify as an animal-assisted crisis response team. It was a very extensive process where they tested my dog's temperament. Thank goodness she passed because that was a long drive if she had not passed. Then we had to return back to St. Louis, and after we found out that we did qualify as uh, part of the, the training program, I drove back down to Atlanta where it was several days of testing both myself and my dog to make sure that we possess the qualities necessary to be a HOPE animal-assisted crisis response team. I have a lot of positive memories of that experience with my dog and the HOPE organization. And so, Nick, I am really glad that you're able to be here with me tonight. I'm glad to be here with you, Allison. Nick, tell me a little bit about your organization, HOPE, and how did it get started? Well, HOPE actually began with a deployment to a school death back in uh, the late 90s, the founder of HOPE recognized that there was more to a crisis response than what a normal therapy dog can do. And so as uh, she developed the organization into and recognizing that these canines did need a lot more training than the average run-of-the-mill therapy dog, HOPE began to develop, and it really came into its own when we responded in the aftermath of the 9-11 attacks. And our team spent a lot of time at Ground Zero. And it sounds like since the time that, did it start in 1999, it looks like? Right. There are approximately maybe 350 HOPE teams across all regions? That's correct, yes. And also into Canada, it looks like. Yeah, we have a couple of teams uh, in Canada as well, so we can deploy into Canada if needed or necessary. Nick, what is your role as part of HOPE? I started out as a HOPE team. My wife and I started out as a HOPE team in 2013, and that happened shortly after I retired. We really got energized with the mission of HOPE and seeing the value of these HOPE teams So over the course of the last seven years, I ended up uh, working or volunteering as a Michigan coordinator, and then eventually as the Michigan and Midwest area was growing, they decided to carve out another region, and I was fortunate enough to be appointed as the uh, regional director, and we're all volunteers here, Mm -hmm. and I, I like to tell my friends that I'm probably working harder now as a whole volunteer than I even did when I was working. But I bet it's rewarding. It's incredibly rewarding. It's an organization that just simply just energizes all of the, the people that volunteer for it. Now, Nick, do you supervise in one region? Yeah, I've got uh, responsibility for the Midwest, Ohio, Indiana, Michigan, uh, Illinois, Wisconsin, Minnesota, Iowa, and Missouri. It looks like, too, that you have had a lot of deployments since you first started. Is that correct? Yeah, we really got thrown right into the the frying pan shortly after we trained in August of 2013, and that was as a result of the uh, Navy Yard shooting in Washington, D.C. There were um, approximately, we we had teams on the ground within a day 
of the shooting, and then we were there the following Monday and spent a week at the Navy Yard. What kind of dog do you have? And I know that your wife, you said, has a golden retriever? Well, we started out, um, I trained with a, uh, uh, our first uh, dog that I trained with was Katie Lynn, and she was a cancer survivor. Uh, She had bone cancer when she was a puppy, and she was scheduled to be euthanized. And Golden Retriever Rescue of Michigan took her and took the leg and said, if she lives, she lives. If she doesn't, uh, she'll have a good end of life. And we came across her when she was about three years old and was just the, the most loving Golden Retriever you ever saw in your life, and you never even knew that she was missing a leg. And at the same time, our other dog that we had, Jet, was a retired leader dog that belonged to a blind friend of ours, and he had developed cancer. So we brought him home to our cottage, and we were going to do dog hospice with him for the few months that he had uh, left. We brought him up here to the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. He swam and played on the beach, and he went into remission for four years. So he became a whole team, and that was my wife's uh, partner. So the first deployment that we did together with Katie Lynn and Jet was the Navy Yard shooting. Those are great stories, and you gave those dogs second and third chances, it sounds like. Yeah, we just lost Katie um, last June. She was 14 years old, and she did very, very well up until the last couple of months, and it's a kind of an interesting story. We live on the water up here, and she spent a lot of time in Lake Huron. When it came time, then when she could no longer get up, had trouble getting up, she went for a swim the last day and was actually floating around on, in the water when the vet came to uh, put her down. So I called her, and she turned and started to swim across the lake to Canada. And I said, wait a minute, we can't have that. Oh and we brought goodness. her back up, and uh, we put her on, the, um, on our front deck, and it was a nice, warm, sunny June day. And the vet came, and my wife was there, and our two most recent Hope canines, Kayak and Ishkel, were on the porch along with Katie, and uh, that's uh, where she went to the Rainbow Bridge. And it was just a very, very nice, uh, calm, uh, calm passing for a dog that had an impact on literally thousands of people over the time that she was a Hope dog. What a wonderful story. And to live that long and to have served and worked to help so many people is remarkable. Oh, yeah. So when you talk about some of the crises that you respond to, the organization helps with, are there certain crises that stick out or disasters that stick out in your mind? You know, they all do over a period of time. While we were not involved in some of the deployments, for example, Ground Zero or Hurricane Katrina or Superstorm Sandy, Hope is deployed to uh, the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children and worked with the folks there have done the Arizona hotshot firefighter deaths, have done floods and landslides and wildfires around the country, tornadoes. I think that obviously one of the deployments that most stood out for us was when we deployed to the Washington Navy Yard in the week following the shooting there, and then uh, the three more times that we went back as the members of the Navy made that transition from out of the building where the shooting occurred into a couple of remote locations, and then finally back into the building where the shooting occurred. We've done witness support, uh, the organization, tornadoes, floods. We're all members of the voluntary organizations active in disasters, both on the national and state level. I think for the most part, our teams in the Midwest have kind of become the go-to agency for school deaths. Uh, Mm. We've responded Probably my wife and I have responded to, oh, I would say 40-plus deaths at schools in the last six years or so. We've become primarily the go-to agency when there is a death at a school. So when you hear of something, I remember years ago when I went through the crisis response training, they gave me a letter that would then certify my dog as a working dog with the insurance and everything, but... It was pretty much whenever they would call, you would have to get ready to go because you were needed right then. Yeah, that's that's pretty much it. Um, the relationships that we've had with especially the schools around here, it's not unusual for us to get a call at 5 o'clock on a Sunday afternoon and be informed of a, of a fatality either in a teacher or a student. And we have our go bags uh, packed, our, little, our whole backpacks ready to go. My wife and I have got a pretty good routine down. She starts packing the clothes and packing the dog food and getting the dogs ready, and I get on the phone and the Internet and try
try to get teams available, and then we're usually on the road pretty quickly. I think our I think our record from the time we got the call to the time we uh, we left the house to deploy was 35 minutes. That's amazing. Do you find it difficult to get your team together? Sounds like you and your wife are ready, but is it hard to track people down? No, we will send out, I'll send out an email to the teams uh, in the Midwest. I'll also follow it up with a text message. And my teams, uh, or the teams that we have in the, in the Midwest, are very, very responsive. So on these, uh, on these quick deployments, I can usually put, a, put uh, several teams together pretty quickly. And obviously, if we have more lead time, it's a little bit easier to put the teams together. But we've got such a great group in the Midwest that uh, they're all pretty much ready to step up at a moment's notice. That's wonderful. Now that I'm thinking about it, we've been talking about animal-assisted crisis response, but it gets very, very confusing when you think about all of the different terms that are used for various animal-assisted activities, you know, animal-assisted therapy. And I actually looked at Pet Partners, which is formerly Delta Society, to get definitions, and we'll put these in the show notes, because it is confusing where animal-assisted intervention, when I looked that up, it's more goal-oriented and structured mm-hmm. interventions for the purpose of uh, therapy and improving somebody's well overall well-being, where animal-assisted therapy is also goal-oriented, but it's really a structured kind of part of treatment where physicians or therapists, physical therapists, people that are yeah. certified will actually use it to initiate some kind of a goal on a treatment plan for a patient, right? Yeah, and that's back when we first became a therapy dog team back in 2008. That's one of the first differentiations we learned. An animal-assisted activity is any visit that's not in a uh, involving physical, occupational, mental health, or speech therapy, or some other medical provider. So those are the visits to the libraries and the hospitals, hospital visits. But the animal-assisted therapy aspect of it was any visit that the dog assists in some sort of therapy activity with a medical provider. And you know that would be, for example, Katie Lynn, our first dog, was certified in both animal-assisted activities and animal-assisted therapy. And when we would go in and work with a physical or an occupational therapist, the dog would do like range of motion, where if you ask someone to, you know, do a range of motion exercise and they didn't feel like it, that would be an issue. But when you come in and say, hey, how would you like to pet a dog by moving your arms up and down the the fur on the back or throwing a ball for the dog, uh, that becomes an animal-assisted therapy that a patient might be more willing to do than just working on some machine. Exactly. Now, what is the difference between a therapy dog and a hope crisis response dog? I can give you maybe an analogy. The difference between a therapy dog and a crisis response dog might be the difference between a registered nurse that works in a hospital on a medical surgical unit versus the registered nurse who is a trauma nurse on a life flight. Uh, They're both nurses, but the trauma nurse has much more extensive training and works under a much, much different and more stressful environment than the nurse that works on the floor. I love that analogy, and I, I just flashed back to when I went through the training with my Golden Retriever charity and how they tested me. It wasn't just my dog. But when we went to the fire station and the fireman came with his oxygen mask and it was, you know, very loud and our dogs had to go up. And then I had to also be aware of my my dog's uh, stress signs. But they also looked to see how I responded and how I worked with my dog as a team. It wasn't just looking at the dog, right? That's correct. We take kind of a holistic approach. Responding to to crises and disasters is quite a different duck than our therapy dog visits. We are all hope dogs are therapy dogs, but not okay. all therapy dogs can be hope dogs. Okay. Tomorrow morning, we're going to load up in the car and go to our local elementary school with our two dogs, and the kids are going to read to the dogs in the morning. Awesome. Uh, that's a therapy visit. We uh, we know we go every Thursday morning. We know we travel in the car. We know that there's staff available. We know that we have uh, assistance or help. The visits are usually one to two hours long. 
not very expensive, you know, we just uh, buy a vest. Not much concern for our safety because, you know, we're going to the school, as opposed to the deployment we would make with Hope where we don't get much warning. If we can get a day or two warning, we're going to be pretty happy about that. We don't know how we're going to travel. We may fly, we may go on a boat, we may go in a fire vehicle or something along that line. The deployments are more chaotic, unpredictable, loud noises, odors, big changes that that occur. Uh, We might have a plan that we start out with at the beginning of the day, and it may change within within a few minutes. Our deployments could last from an hour to several days. Our first deployment to the Navy Yard, we were there for a week. The deployments are a little bit more physically demanding. We may not be staying in in plush hotels. Obviously, we're not staying at home. We've had teams that have stayed at uh, reception centers uh, where Salvation Army and Red Cross are, and they stayed in tents. Uh, That happened in Florida a couple of years ago. And and it's a little bit more expensive. We're all pretty much volunteers. Mm -hmm. when you have to hop on a, on a plane to somewhere, uh, it, it can uh, hit the wallet just a little bit. But mm-hmm. uh, on the other hand, the, uh, the joy and the self-satisfaction you get out of seeing your dog do a great job, that you can't put a price on. Well, I have a question. In a previous podcast, we talked about how handlers and their dogs learn to read each other. And I'm wondering about in this kind of a stressful situation, are there certain signs you have to look for in your dog to make sure that you give your dog a break every once in a while? Because I would think that they would wear down after a while. Oh, yeah. We focus extensively on our, in our training on being your dog's advocate. And one of those uh, things of advocating for your dog is to watch for the stress signs that your dogs display. Our golden retriever, when she needs a break, she just simply turns away from whoever she's talking to. Other dogs get uh, dandruff. Other dogs shed. Our black lab that my wife and I have, who's a retired leader dog as well, she backs away. And you just see those signs that say, hey, we need a, we need a break. And so not only is the, is the handler very, very aware of the dog stress signs, but we all carry little what we call SOS cards that we give to our team leader, if there's a team leader on the scene, that lists the dog stress signs. So the team leader is also very aware of the dog stress signs. And not only that, we also learn to recognize our own stress signs. That's uh, really important, isn't it? Yeah, you know, I sometimes the team leader or one of the other handlers has to come up and say, hey, you need to take a break. When you're working a major disaster or, or any any scene for that matter, you tend to want to take care of everybody. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you push yourself a little too hard. So we're very, very attuned to not only our dog stress signs, but also to the stress signs that we as a handler or as a team leader have. What other special skills do you think it takes to be a handler besides looking at the stress skills in each other? You've got to be quite altruistic. (laughs) You've got to want to be able to, uh, you know, walk out of a dinner with friends at 5 o'clock on a Saturday, after, Saturday or Sunday afternoon because you're going off to, uh, to a deployment someplace. You've got to have a real love of people. You can't be easily stressed. And, and you've just got to be really in tune with your canine partner as well because you are a, you are a team, although most of the time the people don't remember the handler. We've been to a couple of deployments at a couple of schools where we've gone back maybe a second time, and uh, the people at the uh, school know the dog's name, but we're just referred to as the dog people from, from time to time. But that's, uh, that's, a, that's a good thing as well. But you've got to just like, truly like helping people, and all of our teams really have that joy that they get out of going into a a scene that's chaotic and seeing the dogs do their their thing and then see things stabilized. We were at a we were at a school a couple of weeks ago where uh, uh, two seniors had died and a third was on life support and we were there and obviously things were just just depressed as can be. Lots of crying, but you can see the you can see how the dogs help the students process this. And over the course of a couple of days, 
as the school is beginning to work back to normal or as whatever disaster scene you're at is beginning to return to normal. It's, it just gives you a very, very good feeling of watching that metamorphosis from this terrible depression and unhappiness to at least some sense of normalcy. It's just indescribable to see, uh, to see that happen. And it's truly amazing the power that dogs have. Yeah, we were at a uh, we were at a school one time where a where a young man was killed by a drunk driver, and they brought the the seniors into the gymnasium, and they were all you know like zombies sitting there in the uh, in the in the gymnasium, and you know so what's the counselor going to do? Is she going to say, okay, who wants to tell me about your feelings? And none of these kids are going to do it. And I can remember we were. Uh, we were on the floor of the gym on a couple of mats with Katie Lynn, and uh, I had Katie Lynn and my wife had Jet. The counselor started to cajole a couple of students, uh, you know, saying, hey, come on, I know you want to pet the dogs. Yeah, come on down. And so she picked a couple of class leaders and kind of cajoled them into coming down on the floor. And so they did, and then next thing you know, a couple more kids came down, and a couple more kids came down, and all of a sudden you see the kids on the floor processing with the dog, and then they begin to interact, and then they begin to talk a little bit about their feelings, and just things kind of progress at a very positive uh, rate from there. So it's, it's, just, it's just remarkable to see. Most of the deployments, or actually I think all of the deployments that I've been on, my wife has been on, when we leave, the people that have requested us universally say they don't know how they got along in that particular crisis without the dogs. Mm-hmm. It's that unconditional love and the reciprocity, I guess, back and forth between two living beings that are sharing something without even having to talk, right? Yeah, and, and for the most part, while we're trained to recognize stress issues and the people that the dogs are interacting with and to make those referrals to the mental health person or the counselor on the scene, most of the time, to be quite frank, we're just at the end of the leash. And uh, the kids will ask us a couple of questions about the dog, but uh, they're, they're mostly focused on the dog, and, mm-hmm. and that's what the focus of these deployments are. Mm-hmm. We have so much more to talk about. Let's take a quick break, though, during the Animal Academy podcast. We'll be right back. Make your podcast soar with the Editor Corps. The one question every podcaster needs to ask themselves is, why am I still editing my own podcast? We all know that editing your own podcast is the worst part of the podcast experience. Get the editing off your plate and reclaim more time to make more content with The Editor Corps. Affordable, talented, experienced podcast editors are ready to take your podcast literally to the next level to make it soar. Make your podcast soar with the Editor Core. EditorCore.com. That's EditorCore.com. Wouldn't it be cool if your advertising could last forever? It can. With perpetual advertising, here's how it works. Magazine, radio, and television ads are efforts that people might see or hear once, and then they're lost forever. Perpetual advertising provides you with the chance for repeat exposure and replayability weeks, months, even years after it's originally inserted inside a podcast. So even if your advertising is included in a podcast years ago, those efforts are still impactful, providing you with true return on investment, real impact, thanks to perpetual advertising. Are you ready to change the way you and your company or organization advertises? Find out more and launch a unique perpetual advertising effort now by visiting twoguystalking.com forward slash sponsors. Thought about a career in voiceover? Need a great cost-effective on-hold message for your organization or business? Don't know where to start? Check out The Voice Farm, your one-stop shop for voiceover needs. Check it out now by accessing The Voice Farm at voicefarmers.com see what difference can be made with a company that is truly outside the box. From the Voice Box, voicefarmers.com. That's voicefarmers.com. Welcome back to the Animal Academy podcast. So Nick, how do you become a hope dog? If somebody in the audience wants to be a volunteer, how do you, how do you do that? that you have to have is a dog. <laughs> the second <laughs> thing, you want your dog trained in obedience. It sits, they come, heal, you know, doesn't bite, doesn't jump up on people. 
usually going through uh, maybe a kennel club. The uh, AKC has some uh, canine good conduct classes uh, that you can take. Uh, we're relatively close to Canada where we live, so we scoot up to the kennel club in Ontario from time to time just to kind of keep the dogs tuned up. But once the dogs have basic obedience down, you want to join any one of, a na- of the nationally recognized animal-assisted therapy organizations, for example, the Alliance of Therapy Dogs, Pet Partners, and you go through their process of screening and evaluation, and the dog is uh, registered or certified as a therapy dog. And that's the first step. So that's, your, that's, that's the registered nurse that begins working on the floor, if you will. Okay. You want to make at least a dozen or so therapy dog visits over the course of the year. And once you're kind of in tune with your dog and understand uh, what your dog's temperament is and how your dog responds to different environmental cues, then you can apply to HOPE. Dogs have to be at least two years old before they can apply to HOPE. There is a selection process. There's an initial inquiry and are hopeful, we could like to call them hopefuls, uh, would view an online orientation to see if they want to continue, if uh, hope is what they have in mind. If that's the case, then they fill out an application, provide an accounting of their last uh, 12 therapy visits, have their canine examined by a veterinarian, make sure that the uh, fecal is fine and make sure that they're up to date on all their vaccinations. And then once that is done, we put them through a criminal history check. HOPE, as far as I know, is the only organization, either pet therapy or crisis response, that puts our people through a criminal history check that is reviewed on a monthly basis. So they're checked on for for criminal history, they're checked for sex offender registry, no fly list. And so we can confidently say if we're going to a school, is you don't have to vet any of our members because they already have been vetted. That's really important. Uh, That's just getting your foot in the door. Right now we're in our 2020 training cycle. So if you are successful in going through those steps, uh, the initial application, then you're scheduled for a three-hour screening. And these screenings take place in each region uh, at different times, usually in the summer months, anywhere from May to September and October. Now, you went through that screening, I so did. you know that there's a, there's an interview where we chat a little bit about you and ask you about your background, might give you a couple of little scenarios to tell us how you would act. We get to know your dog a little bit, you know, pet your dog, give your dog a little hug, uh, interact with your dog, put your dog through a little basic obedience test just to make sure that what you said on your application is true. And then I think one of the more interesting aspects of our screening process is we set up a role play. And it could be a disaster shelter, it could be a a school crisis or something, but we have you go in and we set up two or three stations with different people in various stages of crises and let you interact with those people at each of those stages. And I think if you recall back to your training in Atlanta, that can be pretty intense. And a lot of times that's when we find out that the dog or the handler or both are not really appropriate for crisis response. The dog may become uh, overly anxious, overly stressed. The handler may become overly stressed. The handler might try to force the dog to do things it doesn't want to do. That would be a point when we would ask, uh, ask the person to pull out of the role play and then talk to them a little bit about whether or not crisis response is appropriate for them. And I remember that, well, that was incredibly stressful, and we had classroom work, and our dog had to be by our side on the floor the entire time in the classroom. And then, you know, we took breaks. But one of the most difficult times was at the end of a very long day, we went to a buffet restaurant. And we went through line, and I thought, oh, my dog stays. But I couldn't just, like, leave her, you know, because we had to have our dogs by our side all the time. So my question was, how do I get the roll off of the buffet without my dog grabbing it out of my hand. Uh, And so I said, Uh, leave it, leave it, leave it. And she left it alone, and I was very glad that she passed. But one thing that we we learned from that is that we made it through dinner without her eating anything. Mm -hmm. 
And as I was leaving, this one little kid came up to us, just ran up to us in the lobby because this was open to the public and just started petting my dog. I looked up and there was a hope person right there watching. And she told me afterwards what you should have done to me is their parents were there to make sure that their parents were okay with their right. child petting my dog. It happened so fast, but... Yeah, yeah. Well, after, the, after they're done with that three-hour screening, if they're acceptable for hope, then they're invited to our workshop. And what you just talked about was part of the workshop. It's a three-day workshop, covers just an incredibly wide range of crisis response topics, organizational structure, uh, interacting with FEMA, incident command system training, how to work to desensitize or counter condition your dog, uh, how to give your dog some choices, how to travel with your dog. One of the more interesting things is because we travel to scenes that might be uh, a little messy, for example, like a, a tornado shelter or a disaster recovery center where there may be some broken glass and stuff on the ground, we do booty training, protective booty, booty training. Now, mm-hmm. did, did you do that in your I workshop? did, yes. I Isn't still have my boots. hilarious to watch dogs. those dogs <laughs> with putting those booties on and walking around with those booties. It's like they're walking on the moon or something. Yeah. And we talk about concepts and phases of disasters during this. We talk a lot about mental health and what to say and what not to say. And we do a lot of role-playing. We introduce the dogs to some pretty... Um, intense stimuli, like you said, the fire department visit and introducing uh, the dogs to uh, uh, Scott air packs and uh, fire hoses and generators and things like that. And one of the more interesting things I think we do is the trip to the airport Mm -hmm. because our our dogs do fly with us. Mm -hmm. And so we go through TSA training and practice bringing the dogs through the airport screening process as well. Plus the dinner out is always fun. Mm -hmm. Uh, But it gives us a chance during those periods of time to see how your dog handles a little bit longer day, if you will, even though we give them plenty of breaks and we work very hard not to stress the dog. The other nice thing in the workshop and even the screening is we really want to set your canine team up for success. And we have some incredible, incredible canine instructors that will spot a potential problem Mm -hmm. and they'll work with the handler to say okay here's how we can you know kind of redirect or do whatever to make the dog more successful so it's not one of those trainings you know remember the ones we used to go to where the instructor would come in and say look at the person on your left they're not going to graduate you know (laughs) uh we're not going to we don't put you under any kind of stress like that you're you're under enough stress and the instructors were really informative, and you know, several of them had a mental health background and were therapists. And right. I still have my little report card, you know, what areas <laughs> to continue to work on. Which you know, of course, in right. crisis response, you always have to work on those skills because they're different than what you experience oh, in day to day life. Nick, when deploying to a location for the first time, how well received are you and your Hope Dog? How do you fit into that existing crisis response protocol, I guess? First off, how we received is dependent on whether or not we've been to that location before. Sometimes we're met with some skepticism. Sometimes we've been met with a little downright hostility. You know, what are you bringing these dogs in for? So a, a good share of what we do in HOPE is educate. We educate the organizations that request us. We educate the people that we have contact with in terms of what our role is. And one very important thing is we're not coming in like the pros from Dover who are going to come in and say, step back, you can't possibly know how to handle a crisis. We'll show you how it's done. (laughs) That couldn't be farther from the truth. Mm -hmm. Uh, We are driven by the needs of the people where we deploy. But one really interesting and very positive aspect of being a member of HOPE is we are trained in what is called the incident command system. And that has been established by FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management Agency, after 9-11. Because what they found out in 9-11 is that everybody was using different codes and different procedures and, and different radio signals, and one agency couldn't talk to another agency. And what FEMA did post 9-11 was to get everybody on the same page. So we all have a common vocabulary. 
when we come in, we know that there is within the incident command uh, structure, there's a liaison officer within that incident command structure. And we know that our HOPE agency representative will meet with that liaison officer to determine what our role is going to be in a major disaster. If we're going to a school, I'll usually talk to the superintendent or the principal or the counselor before we deploy to talk a little bit about what's needed and what's necessary and what we need and what our purpose is. We'll try to meet with, for example, all the counselors in the morning before the children come in in order to get everybody to understand what our role, what our mission is. So because we follow the incident command structure, no matter how small or how large the incident, we, we have a way of meshing and, and fitting right in. One other important thing is we never self-deploy. There are situations when I know our dogs could be of value and I reach out and say, would you like to hope dogs? And they say, no, we're fine. Okay. Uh, either they don't want an outside change agent coming in or they think they, could, they can handle it. A big issue with a lot of crises are what we call SUVs, which are spontaneous, uninvited volunteers. Mm-hmm. And there have been situations in which alleged crisis response canines or therapy dogs have showed up on a scene that's not been stabilized thinking they can help out Mm. and end up causing more problems than they do good. So we never, ever self-deploy. We always come in when we're asked. And I think that's that's a key aspect of the professionalism of HOPE. And it shows the respect for the first responders. And also you need some sense of organization in a chaotic situation. You bet. Nick, what have you learned from your experience as part of a crisis response organization? I think I've learned to become pretty well organized. I have learned that I have got a wonderful, wonderful cadre of other teams that are just the finest kind that you could ever ever come across. I've learned a lot about the federal government I never knew about in uh, a lot of the FEMA training that I do. Uh, we see a lot of things that the federal government and the state and the county and the local agencies do that, that most of the public doesn't realize they're doing. I've been involved in the, and HOPE has been involved with the Voluntary Organizations Active in Disasters. As a matter of fact, we were the organization of the year for National VOAD last year. But I'm a member of Michigan VOAD. I serve on, uh, as the vice chair And every week we have a phone conference with the Red Cross, Salvation Army, Mennonites, Michigan State Police, and other uh, folks to talk about what's going on, current disasters, things to look for. I've met some of the finest people in VOAD, in Michigan VOAD. We meet quarterly, and of course we, we speak weekly, working with the state police, working with county police agencies, local police agencies. I've just met some of the most wonderful people and just have learned so much about response protocols and how to deploy and uh, how to interface with the Coast Guard and the Border Patrol and uh, federal and state, local and tribal uh, agencies. It's just it's just been a joy to do. You know, when you were talking about working with all those individuals from different organizations, I thought about, you know, my many years working for a large hospital organization and being in the field that I am in uh, social work, uh, as a licensed clinical social worker, I worked with nurses and doctors and physical therapists and occupational therapists. And we all had to have a respect for each other's professions, but also know that there's strength across disciplines. Right. And it kind of gave me that idea when you're talking about that is that you have to have a mutual respect for each other. And then also that creates this huge village that helps the people that need it the most. Yeah, yeah, and and I think we have we have the easiest in because when you walk into a room with a dog and you look at this at at, at the faces of all mm-hmm. the people in there, either whether we're going to a to a meeting or whether we're going on a deployment, and you just watch the facial expressions, you don't have to sell yourself anymore. You know, you just uh, you just kind of talk about who you are and what you are while they're petting the dog. The dogs are great icebreakers. They certainly are. Nick, you've already shared so many interesting stories. Are there any other highlights or any other information that you'd like to share with me tonight? If we go back to 2009, I believe, I'd have to double-check the date, but 
back about 10 or 11 years ago, there were two major animal-assisted crisis response organizations, and HOPE was one of them. And they got together and they sat down and they developed a set of national standards for what an animal-assisted crisis response canine should be, what teams should do, how they should be screened, and how they should be trained. And those standards ain't easy. It's not impossible, but it takes a lot of work to become a member of HOPE plus maintain your membership. And that's key. Once you get your, once you get your certificate, you're not done. Mm-hmm. Within the first year, you have to do your pet first aid, and your human first aid and CPR. You have to complete psychological first aid training. You have to take IS-100, which is the famous incident command structure. Our training, as you know, is very, very thorough, very, very involved. And so as one of these national standards were promulgated, there were two organizations that met those standards. And as far as I know, today, no new organizations who've labeled themselves animal-assisted crisis response meet those standards. We see a lot of people throwing a moniker on their therapy dogs and call them crisis response dogs or comfort dogs. And to be quite frank, they're not properly trained. And they can go in with this, hey, I'm a crisis response dog, and they don't know how they fit in. They don't know how to interact. And so we're seeing it more and more is underprepared organizations don't meet those standards. And when somebody says, well, how do we know if the crisis response canine that's coming in is actually a crisis response canine? And I'll ask them questions like, are they criminally vetted monthly? Ask them that question. Have they completed FEMA training? Have they completed psychological first aid? Do they have in-service training that they're uh, required to complete? Are they members of national VOAD or their state VOAD? You can do a lot of uh, basic vetting over the telephone and and discount whether or not the organization is actually uh, a credible and professional organization. So one of the biggest concerns is there are a lot of folks out there who claim to be crisis response canine organizations and they can go in and mess up a, a response because they are not properly trained. So you got to be quite careful. And we're seeing it more and more in the last few years with, well, we're seeing it with emotional support animals. We're seeing it with, you know, I can go online and buy a service dog outfit and then claim to be able to take my dog anywhere. And so you're seeing a lot of, and I, in, in some cases, outright fraud. We've had some situations where we have come in contact with supposedly well-trained dogs in their, in their vests that have uh, been aggressive toward our dogs. And so, you know, you just have to, uh, you have to be very, very careful about the organizations you want to work with. And when you're taking your dog into a disaster situation, it's already chaotic anyway, and right. that is going to break even the most well-trained person and dog down at some point. So oh, you yeah. need to go in and be stable. At the get-go. Yes. Yeah. You know, and, I, and I'd like to, I, I have one great story. I'd love to hear uh, it. To share. And, of course, after we're done with this podcast, I'll probably think of a hundred different things <laughs> that, you know, I want to say. But, you know, you had asked me a question about an interesting story that I'd like to share. And our first deployment to the Navy Yard back in 2013, this was, this was a chaotic situation. You had over 3,000 people in one building that had to be evacuated and moved away to places all over the metro Washington area. Wherever there happened to be a cubicle, that's where they would put one of the survivors of the shooting. We came in, we worked with the Naval Sprint Team, which is a special psychiatric intervention team. We also worked with the Employee Assistance Program on the civilian side. We deployed all over the place And I remember we were standing outside uh, in the Washington Navy Yard when one of the senior executives, uh, pretty much the equivalent of of the civilian side of an admiral, came up and said, could you bring the dogs to my unit? We got moved uh, several blocks away. And and we did. And I was up there with Katie Lynn. And Katie Lynn had this 
incredible ability to walk into a room of 100 people and go up and plop down in front of the person who was stressed. I don't know how she did it, <laughs> but she was really good at it. But we were making our rounds through the cubicle, and a, and a woman came out, and she was she was dressed more formally than all the other employees. And she didn't say a word, and she got down on the floor, and she began to stroke Katie almost like a mother would gently stroke her child. Hmm. And nobody said anything, and you just watched the anguish begin to leave her face. And she petted Katie for it must have been 15 minutes. And she didn't say another thing, and she got up, and she went back to her cubicle. And I never knew who that woman was, but I always wondered who she was. And when we made our fourth trip back to the Navy Yard, we ended up going back into that same unit. And it's quite a large unit, several hundred people. And this woman came out, and she got down on the floor, and she started to pet Katie. And she shared that day back in 2013 with me. When she sat down on the floor with Katie, she had just come back from her seventh funeral. Mm. And she said that the dog was just exactly what she needed. So much so that shortly thereafter, she and her husband went out and got a rescue dog. Her husband also worked at the Navy Yard, and between the two of them, they knew most of the victims who were shot. And she said to me, her husband never showed any emotion about that incident afterwards until the first night they had their new, rescue, their, their new rescue dog at home, and the dog crawled up on the pillow between them. And that's when her husband broke down and cried for the first time since the shooting. Wow. What an amazing story. That gave me goosebumps. But I'm it, sure that's just one of a multitude of stories that you have to share. Yeah, and, and all of our teams across the country the other six regional directors and with all their teams are just, and, and our board of directors are just the finest people you'd ever want to meet and are just so dedicated to this service. One of the things that we do also is at the end of our deployment day, we debrief. Okay. Uh, we have a debrief protocol that we go through with our teams. We also have mental health professionals that are members of HOPE that provides support to our teams should one of our team members have some, uh, some trouble processing the particular deployment that, uh, that they've been on. Nick, could you help me a little bit if you're walking down the street or if anybody's walking down the street and they see a service dog, what would be the difference between a service dog and a working dog as defined by your crisis response dogs? A service dog is a dog that is covered under the Americans with Disabilities Act. And a service dog is a dog that's trained to a specific task for a specific individual. For example, our black lab Ishkel was a leader dog for a blind person, trained to lead that specific blind person. One of the people we trained under when we were first Got, when we first got into therapy dog work, had a medic alert dog. The dog alerted her to a seizure. That's mm -hmm. a dog that's trained to do a specific thing for a specific individual. Mm -hmm. They are covered under the Americans with Disabilities Act. Now, you're going to see that person. They're going to be out. They're going to have, an, they'll have an, a vest that identifies the dog as a service dog. You know, don't pet me. Don't come up to me. Those dogs are the ones that you leave alone to let them do their work. The working dogs, which is maybe, maybe the service dogs we'll call the highest category. The second highest category are the working dogs. The working dogs are trained to perform specific tasks such as search and rescue, law enforcement, narcotics, cadaver dogs, uh, the military canines. These are the dogs that hope dogs are. They're working dogs. So they're trained to do a particular group of tasks above and beyond the average canine. Then I think the next level down are the therapy dogs, go into the nursing homes, the hospitals, and the libraries. And then finally, the bottom line are the pets uh, mm -hmm. that people have either trained or not trained. Mm -hmm. So those are kind of the, 
the levels you would probably see when we're trying to define where hope dogs fit into those different categories. Police dogs, search and rescue dogs, cadaver dogs, narcotics dogs are all working dogs as are our hope dogs. Thank you so much. That I remember getting the letter saying Charity is now a working dog and little certification number, and I actually had an ID with her picture on it that she had to wear on her collar, and I also had an ID tag right, um, that right. I would wear, too. And, of course, these dogs, uh, the Hope Dogs, are all insured. Well, Nick, this has been a, a wonderful interview. I've really enjoyed meeting you and talking to you this evening. Is there anything else you'd like to share? If I can leave you with one additional thought, our sure. mission, Hope's mission, is to provide comfort and encouragement through animal-assisted support to individuals affected by crises and disasters. And it's key that individuals, those are not only the victims, but also the first responders, the dispatchers, everybody who is involved in a crisis and disaster. We don't self-deploy. All you need to do is call our 800 number, one eight seven seven hope canines to request a hope team. Then that call will be routed through our national office, and then it'll be routed off to one of the regional directors to respond. Terrific. Uh, to become a member or to uh, call out the Comfort Dogs, you can contact us at our eight hundred number or at hope a a c r dot org. And, Nick, we're going to put all of those numbers in our show notes so people can look at that and also the definitions of all the things we talked about today because it does get a little confusing. Uh, well, I'm, I'm so glad to uh, have been able to share Hope's mission as well. Yes, I appreciate it. Okay, Allison, thank you very much. We'll all talk right. to you soon. Bye-bye. Wow, what a phenomenal program. Nick shared incredible stories that touched hearts and healed many wounds in the face of crises and disasters. His stories again show the enormous impact animals play as healers. Nick shared many classifications of programs that are available, all of which require advanced training. Even though these animals have a defined role, the impact they provide to the community cannot be measured. Thanks for taking the time to listen to this episode of the Animal Academy podcast. Detailed contact information and links for each of the guests and resources provided inside this episode can be found at my website, animalacademypodcast.com. I'm Allison White, licensed clinical social worker specializing in the human-animal connection. Let's share and learn from the animals in the next episode of the Animal Academy Podcast.